HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Athena Bochanis. We'll talk to Athena about Hungarian wines, grape varietals, and more. We're going to taste a bunch of Hungarian wines that Athena brought in during the show and for our weekly wine sip, if we could survive all these wines. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Athena Bochanis was a disaffected and disillusioned NYU law school graduate. She had already been to Europe, did an unpaid internship in Hungary, and also returned for another visit. Athena had fallen in love with the country, the people, the food, wine, and culture, and was determined to expose New York and the world to Hungarian wines. So she started... Polinkery, a Hungarian wine import company in Brooklyn, making Hungarian wines more accessible to everyone. And I think she's the only person that is 100% Hungarian wines. True? That's true. All right. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Athena. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you for coming in. All right. So let's tell everybody a little about how you got here. So tell me quickly about your journey in life and wine that got you currently to running your own business, of which we'll talk about later. But get me up to Palinkery. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you gave a pretty good introduction, but I would say my story goes something like this. I was in law school at NYU. First year of school, the market crashed. 
I went to Budapest for an internship and I realized I don't want to be a lawyer. I love Hungary. This wine is really good. All of these things kind of came together at the same time. Um, and also the job market, the job prospects for law students at the time were really bad. But actually it forced me to think about if I even really wanted to do this. And I realized that the answer was no. So this is kind of when I started looking for alternative careers. And the great thing about kind of getting off of this traditional path is that you kind of have no rules. Like anything you do, in a way you've already like not done what you're supposed to do. So right. you're really, anything's open to you. So I was, I, I was free to really think about what I really wanted, what I really thought could be cool, what I'd be good at. And it was actually, my friends were jokingly being like, can you just start importing Hungarian wine because it's all you talk about and just do it already. So for a while you were consumed right. with Hungary, the wines, mm -hmm. and when you're around people, mm -hmm. that's pretty much all that was coming out of you. <laughs> yeah. So that was the ask. Mm -hmm. Why don't you just, okay, mm -hmm. so take it from there. Yeah, and it was one of those, probably they meant it as a joke, but it was one of those jokes that rang true, as all good jokes do. And I looked into it and thought, actually, this could be great, and it could be exactly what I want to do and I might just be in that position to do it. I love Hungarian wine. I studied Hungarian and I'm kind of in this place where I feel sort of fearless. I'm ready to start something new. So this is kind of how I got the idea. I trailed another small importer for a few months. Like, what year are we looking at right now? This is now like 2013. Okay. That summer, 2013, I went to Hungary. I tasted wine with a ton of people. A lot of the producers I still work with, I tasted and met them that summer. I was in Hungary for three months. So I really tried to get a lay of the land, see what was up. Um, I learned so much. A lot of people helped me. It was great. By that fall, I decided on 11 wines to start with. And nobody had real representation here? No. So the market was wide open for wide your idea. Open. Wide open. Yeah. Good choice. So by March 2014, the first shipment arrived. March 2014, mm -hmm. your first shipment from, what'd you say, nine producers, 11 wines? Exactly. Okay, where'd they go? Just <laughs> They arrived to my warehouse in, but actually really near here in East Williamsburg. Okay, Bushwick. so they came to mm -hmm. Brooklyn. Yeah. All right, so that's, that's what happened to you. Um, I'm sure your parents were thrilled that you packed in law school to throw the dice on this one, but they have to be happy and proud now. Mm. All right, so you start your uh, wine import and distribution company. You deal with Hungarian wines exclusively. Let's get into that, and there's a lot of ways to get into it. First of all, I'm going to guess my listeners know very little about Hungarian wine. So give me a brief history of not Hungary or wine, but Hungarian wines. <laughs> All right. So Hungary is what we would call an old world wine country. They've been producing wine for at least a thousand years. So it's nothing new in Hungary. Um, there's actually evidence that Hungarians were maybe making wine before the Romans. Either it was before or it was introduced by the Romans. So it's been at least as long as these Western European countries, but maybe older. Hungary is one of the only countries in Europe that has a word for wine not coming from the Latin. Which is finis, vinum? Is that... <laughs> That's the Latin, and the Hungarian is bor. Spell. B-O-R. Bor. 
That's the Hungarian word for wine? Exactly. Bor. Okay. So in Hungary, there's winemaking all over the country. Um, Like every corner of the country is suitable for winemaking. This is something that's, I would say, sort of unique about this country. There aren't that many countries like that, I suppose. But there's a reason. I mean, it's sort Mm -hmm. of an agricultural hub. I mean, they grow a lot of fruits and vegetables, supply Europe and all that. So wine fits right in, Exactly. And there's actually evidence that Venus vinifera, the wine grape, has been growing there for an egger um, in North Hungary. They found a two and a half million year old fossil of Venus vinifera. So it's growing natively for a long time in Hungary. Mm -hmm. Now, Hungary was a communist country, right? Yes. Did, Did that have an effect? pre- and post-communism on wine drinking production? Yeah, so communism had a huge effect on the Hungarian wine industry. Before before World War II, I would say, Hungary was positioned to be a major player in European winemaking. Um, in the 19th century, it was famous for its sweet wine, but also the red wine was being exported. It had a huge, for instance, wine barrel making production. Um, after World War II and under the communist rule, things really kind of went south. Everything was collectivized. And so the state was moving towards like mass production farming. So things were replanted in a way that these communist tractors could go through the rows. And <laughs> basically, you know, they were looking for low quality, high volume wine. Um, so a lot of the best vineyard sites in Hungary, like the really traditional ones, they're always these steep slopes on the top of hills, actually weren't cultivated at all. So they were overgrown, things like that. Um, the effect now, so after 1990-ish, um, they had privatization again. So a lot of people reclaimed like some small amount of land who used so to own land. So from World War II to 1990 mm-hmm. was not a lot going on. I mean, 1990s a period where things really mm-hmm. started. Okay, there was winemaking going on, yeah. but it's a winemaking we want to forget. Right? But yeah, it was bad. But the renaissance of good wine was from. So what happens right. there? Not until 1990, and then you have to think everyone. So they privatize land. People get these small parcels, like 5, 10, 20, maybe 40 hectares, who used to own land. Or you could buy a small piece. And then you'd pretty much have to replant because everything had been planted in this right. way for the tractors. And they wanted to do go back to hand-picked wine. So, like, everything we're looking at in Hungary, with some exceptions, unless you were in one of these places that these tractors weren't farming in, like, you had to replant, kind of start afresh. So it's, um, it's exciting working in Hungarian wine now because what that means is that it's still so many new producers and experiments as to like dry styles of wine and right. what type of wine is good in this region, what's the terroir here. It's so suited for wine. It's really easy to make wine in Hungary, but they're we'll, we'll still t- figuring out like what's interesting We'll talk where. about regions and varietals and all that. Um, a couple of curiosities. So the wine that was being made was basically being drank by Hungarians? In communism? Yeah, and even like up until 1990. I mean, they weren't... It was exported... It was? In the, in the Soviet Union. Okay. Especially cheap red wine. Not the most, you know, 
<coughs> attractive wine market or whatever. No. So there really wasn't much going on. There was also some export to the United States of cheap red wine, especially a wine called Bull's Blood. Right. That if you ask some old timers. Egger? Yeah, Egri. Egri? Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that. Which now can be made into a very good wine, I just want to clarify. Oh, I'm sure you've found, <laughs> you know, the good Bull's Blood. Um, why do you think, so let's even take from 1990 on, you know, forget pre-1990, why do you think Hunga- Hungarian wines were so under the radar, you know, from 90 to even the day that you, because I'm not sure there's an Athena in Chicago and LA and San Francisco, you know, importing Hungarian wines. Why is this wine so under the radar? It's something people ask me a lot, and I have a few answers for you, but I think that a major one is what I said about it being a lot of small producers and really, like, family-run, tiny wineries. So it's difficult to export, and it's not appealing to, like, a big importer to work with someone who has, you know, a tiny winery, and they're doing everything by hand, and the uncle's bringing it in, and things like that. <coughs> so it's a pain, it was a pain in the butt. I think also there's something about Hungarian language. Um, it's it's <laughs> Hard its to... own thing, and people don't speak it, and a lot of Hungarians don't speak English. So there's also that kind of. So it was it was it was difficult, mm-hmm. you know, for people. It just, it just didn't make sense to spend time. Right. But what you stated is now kind of what's hot. Yeah. You know, you want unfound <coughs> regions. You want small producers. You know, all of that stuff. So you, you kind of hit the stride at a good time. Would you say that? That is how I feel. And even the first summer I was in Hungary before I started my business kind of tasting and seeing what was going on, I felt like Hungarian wine was having a moment in Hungary. And I was so excited because all these new things were coming up. These wine, like um, young winemakers, wine bars in Budapest and all this experimental wine. Right. and. I realized it was like a really exciting time to be there. And we've also now gone towards this, yeah, small production, handmade, unique wine trend here in the U.S. as well. So it's it's working out. So tell me about the winemaking community. Is it still, like, you know, you could even compare it to France or Italy, let's say. Is it still a bunch of old guys and families and their kids have young guys come in (coughs) since the 90s? I mean, who's making the noise there now? Mm -hmm. It's definitely the new, it's the young generation of the old guys. It's like mostly their sons. The old guys that were winemakers? Their sons, okay. It's their sons and daughters. There's some people who don't come from winemaking, but most of our winemakers we work with are under 40. So people are young. Um, we have a wine in front of us right now. The winemaker is 31. And a Tell lot of the quick, winemakers... Let's talk about, you know, a good time to take a break. Tell me what it is. This is called Ufark. Spell. <laughs> J-U-H-F-A-R-K. That's the name of the grape. Ufark is the grape. Mm-hmm. And this... Is it that? It looks a little pinkish. It's a white Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a delicate white. It's only found in one appellation in Western Hungary called Shomlo. Shomlo. S-O-M-L-O? Nailed it. Okay. This is Hungary's good smallest guess. appellation. Very good. Um, it's black basalt volcanic soil here, so it's a very volcanic terroir. Who's the producer? His name is Kish Tomás. Spell. <laughs> 
Um, it's going to be a long day. I know. Keish is K-I-S. Okay. And Tomash is T-A-M-A-S. Okay. Um, he goes under the name Shomloy Vandor, which is like Shomloy Vendor. Okay. And it is a dry... Explain the color to me. He leaves the wine on the grapes. He leaves the wine on the grapes for less than a day. Okay. And so it gets this... It's a pretty delicate kind of... This is not an orange wine, is it? No, people, no, no. It's not a rosé. No, no, It's no. just kind of a deep golden mm-hmm. pinkish mm-hmm. white. Let's just take a sip while we're... Uh... So this wine is... Very dry. From a very distinctive terroir. Um, and all the Eufarks that you'll find will have this kind of ashy, smoky quality to them. Definitely a more savory wine. This is one is savory. really clean, really delicate. It's nice. Um, I, I want to talk to you about soil and climate and regions, so we'll be able to break that down a little. Um, so let's start with regions. Of which you said this is from Somlo. So let's talk about the major regions. General climate. And you mentioned two, three soils already. So I'm sure some of the soils are indigenous of certain areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's keep it simple because we're trying to teach the peeps here. Um, <laughs> what are the major wine growing regions? And... Tell me a little about that area. Okay. So, again, there's wine all over Hungary. Right. Technically, it's 22 wine regions in Hungary. I would say the major regions, we have, like, the northeast, which is Tokaj. We have... T-O-K-A-J? T-O-K-A-J. Okay, which Mm -hmm. is a very famous wine region. Yeah. Tokaj. And about an hour and a half from there in the car, you have Eger. This is where we get... Spell E-G... E-R. E-R, Eger. Mm-hmm. This is where we get the bull's blood. Okay. Reds. <coughs> Reds and whites. Okay. Um, in Western Hungary, we have Lake Balaton. This is Shomlo, like the volcanic wine we're tasting right now. Also some limestone and volcanic soils north of Lake Balaton. Okay. This is now, you can imagine, we're northwestern Hungary. So like sort of approaching the Austrian border. And at the Austrian border is where they have the Burgenland, so you can imagine, like, kind of where we are. Right. Northern Hungary, so it's all across northern Hungary, there's volcanic soil, limestone soil at different places, and it's hilly. Um, I would say then the other big place for winemaking is southern Hungary, and two regions that we work with are Sexard and Vilagne. So these are more of a sub-Mediterranean climate, where in the north it's the continental climate, so here it's a few degrees warmer Celsius. It's lowest soil, so it's not volcanic soil. And in Vilang, that's like the most southern region in Hungary. So this is like the warmest place, almost at the Croatian border. Is that where most of the reds are grown? <coughs> that's where we get these big reds. Because of the climate mm-hmm. and the soils and all of that? Exactly. They but- grow white as well, but you can have these huge red wines in the south of Hungary. All right, so let's review. Igor mm-hmm. is famous for bull's blood, which is kind of when people, if they know anything about Hungarian wines, heard of bull's blood, which was just, what, a big bull cheap red or something? 
It's a historical blend. Historical blend. And unfortunately, now, this is the connotation. Now the art has been upped. Exactly. I mean, there are makers. So, would if you and I drank different bulls' bloods, do the blends vary? People are blending. The rules of bull's blood, it has to be at least three grapes, and it has to be at least 50% native grape. Okay. So the blends will vary, but will kind of get the same effect in most cases, I would say, because usually it's about 50% Cake Francoche, Blau Frankish. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and is there a white in the uh, Eger region? Mm-hmm. In Eger, they also grow a lot of different whites. We bring in a white field blend, so a blend that's kind of the white equivalent of the Bica Ver right. called the Egri Chilog, the Star of Eger. And this C-S-I-L-L-A-G? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. When people look for this stuff, I, you know, <laughs> Chilog, who knows what that starts with. I know. Okay. So, all right, so on Tokai, just for some people... They may think of what that is and not know. It's sort of like the sweet sauternes of France. I'm not comparing them, mm-hmm. yeah. but Chateau d'Aquim and the Souderade and all that. It's this, you know, botrysized grape, and it's it's expensive and you know hard to make and all of that. So Tokai's claim to fame is the Tokai Azu, but they're making some incredible wines there, right? Mm-hmm. What are they making there? So they're also making dry wine, which they started doing in the 90s. So this is relatively also a new thing really? for Tokai. Um, it's an excellent soil for wine, excellent climate, and there's native grapes there that make these really powerful wines. Are we talking mostly white? It's only white. It's only white. Okay. Yeah. You could grow red there, but you can't get the Tokai appellation if it's a red. Right. So Tokai, um, when we get to grape varietals, we'll talk about that. All right. I pronounced this wrong, so correct me. Vilani? How do you pronounce it's it? It's V-Line. V-Line. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the region in the south. Mm-hmm. That's where you're going to find reds. Um, what kind of reds? Cap Franks? Yeah, Cab Franc is the famous grape there. This is um, something they also started experimenting with in the 90s. And from what I've been told, they found that the climate and the soil were really comparable to the Loire, a little bit warmer. But they thought, actually, they did studies and took the soil back to France and asked what they would recommend them growing. And they said, hands down, Cab Franc. So it's become kind of a home of Cab Franc. And every year there's big festival tasting um, really interesting Cab Francs, but there's Cab Sauv, Syrah, Cake Francoche, Merlot, etc. Um, what's Cake Frankel, Frankel like? <laughs> cake Francoche. Cake Francoche. Cake, cake, cake mm-hmm. What? So you said Merlot, Cab Sauv, Cab Franc. What's a characteristic that makes that different? Cake Francoche is known in some English-speaking circles as Blau Frankish. Okay. Blau Frankish is. Mm, I would say in a blind tasting, it might, depending on the style, it could be confused for maybe a Gamay, maybe a Cab Franc without pure zines. But so it's not a heavy. Else. Exactly. It's got some nice it's finesse fruit. to it. Mm-hmm. It's right. fruity. It's medium bodied. Um, you so, can get a bigger one in Hungary. but Sounds like a great grape. It is a delightful grape. I assume that probably in the last 10, 15 years, more guys are making more of that than they did. In the old days, just not much? You know, there's definitely... Imagine, like, it's 1990, you're out of communist Hungary, you're a winemaker, and now you can do 
anything. So actually, there's been so much experimentation with international varietals. Cab Franc, Cab Sauv, Syrah, Merlot, what do we like, etc. cetera. Um, and I'm always trying to get them to make a cake francos, make a cadorca, make the native grapes. To them, it's not that interesting because now they get to experiment with the right. world of grapes. Chardonnay, I like your perspective, but you have to understand theirs. Exactly. And it's a, it's a compromise. For instance, one of, our, one of my favorite producers in Vilang this year finally produced a cake francos. And usually it's all these international reds. And I was so excited. And I feel like we do have this kind of back and forth where we can, they experiment, I tell them what we want, they know what Hungary wants. Were you able to import some of it? Mm -hmm. He he made some Mm -hmm. for you? All right, so the last major region is Somlo, which you said was Ufark. Ufark. Mm -hmm. And what other wines are coming out of that region? Predominantly Ufark? Ufark? So I would say in Somlo, you can make... What, it's a white wine region. Okay. Um, you can make Furment, Harschlebelu, so the grapes from Tokai that are famous from Tokai. You can make uh, Gruner Veltliner, which is called Zödveltelini. You could make Ufark, etc. But Ufark is kind of the most interesting grape there because it's only found there. Right. And I think makes the most volcanic so that makes it of interesting. the wines. Mm-hmm. That's, it, that's a good segue for us to talk about grape varietals. Because obviously grape varietals, you know, it's very important to the wines. We talked about the regions. We matched them to some of the grapes. But um, I'm assuming there's a lot of grape varietals. But is it fair to say that there's 15, 20, 25 you know, major varietals that are grown the most or you import the most, you know, let's talk about them. Let's talk about, you know, you, your business and what you're bringing in because what people can drink and get is basically, you know, the stuff mm-hmm. that you're bringing in. So let's talk grape varietals. What what's What are you bringing the most in? You mentioned a bunch. Mm-hmm. Just go all over the place. Perfect. Tell me. Okay. So in Hungary, the most common red varietal is Cake Frankos. Okay. That's like the Blanc and Frisch or whatever. Exactly. Okay. Blau Frankish. Blau Frankish. So this is the native this is the main varietal grown in Hungary. It's native to Hungary. And we bring that in in a rose, which I have here, and also a red from Vilang. But they're making Cake Frankos all over Hungary. It's a really fun wine. It's definitely, for people that are looking for this kind of medium-bodied, a little bit earthy, red fruit, um, red, I think it's it can make a great wine. But it's also done in Hungary sometimes in this really full-bodied style. Okay. Um, that's the main red grape. There's also another native grape called Kadarka, which is really interesting, um, harder to get our hands on. You made a comparison with the other wine. What would you, what's Kadarka's soulmate? Kadarka's soulmate. Kadarka is like sort of a, a funky Pinot Noir. Um, it's also a thin Where's skin. Where's the funk? In the mm-hmm. nose, the flavor? The... the nose and the flavor both lean towards this kind of it's a very delicate grape, so it really easily gets botrycized. Like, so it's um, finicky, like a Pinot Noir. Exactly, it sounds even more more finicky. So yeah. it, it usually like it's very common to taste this kind of raisin essence in it, but it's delicate. It sounds it's like a Pinot Noir Amarone or something. <laughs> yeah. It's got that raisiny. Mm-hmm. Um, 
All right, so what else? In the Kadarka. White. Yeah, Kadarka. So those are two predominant grapes. Yeah. That are being grown coming <coughs> out of the country and of interest to you that you're bringing in. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's tons of other grapes. Exactly. I mean, there's a bunch of guys in Napa growing Ribola Gialla and, you know, all the. But people look at Napa as, you know, Cobb Sauvignon and Merlot or whatever. Right. So there's tons of grapes in Hungary, but totally. these are the. All right, let's go white. In the whites, there's a ton of native grapes. So the most, for me, the ones I'm bringing in, the ones that are kind of really interesting, are ferment. Ferment can be grown all over the country. Mm F-U-R-M-I-N-T is the grape, a white grape. It's a white grape. Um, This grape makes, I would say, really kind of wines with a lot of structure, good acidity, medium to full-bodied white. This is the main grape in a sweet or dry Tokai wine. and But you can have it all over the country. Um, if there's fruit on it, it's kind of an apple or green apple. It's not this super aromatic, fruity white. It's really more austere, more terroir-driven. Right. Um, you know what I didn't ask you? Of, of, of all these wines and regions, and I know the answer varies, but what's the usage of oak? Oak on the white, oak on the red. Some some winemakers stay away from oak. What, what's the general mm-hmm. take on oak? It's a good question. Um, historically, everyone is putting things into oak. Okay. Usually large format, 500 liter used oak. And right. it's all Hungarian oak. But in the last few years, and I really like unoaked wines as well. So this is also my personal preference. And I really like tasting pure versions or like partially oak partially stainless styles of wine because i think sometimes like we can we can taste the grape a little bit more it can be a little bit more light on its feet we don't always need like a full-bodied oak red for instance so it's kind of a compromise Is there a trend i mean are people because it sounds like oak historically was important Mm because there's really three oak making regions there's the u.s france and you throw in Hungary and mm-hmm. they make their own. Are they yeah. moving a little away from it or? I think yes. Okay. Um, definitely moving towards less oak, just like here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. We're talking to Athena Bocanis, um, who is a Hungarian wine importer and export, importer and distributor and expert is what I meant to say. <laughs> um, I want to ask you one more question, then we're going to take a break. Got a bunch of other questions, subject you to the wine list and we'll taste some more wines. Talk to me about your winemakers, your wineries, Hungary in general, how they're approaching natural, sustainable, organic wines. In Hungary, um, it's it's sort of an interesting situation because you can imagine like these winemakers are still often, especially if they have their small family-run winery, they're often doing traditional winemaking that is very sustainable and very like low intervention so it's you know spontaneous fermentation almost everywhere it's things like um yeah manual punch down it's like uh, unfined it's rough filtration things like that that's what they've been doing and they continue to do it and it was Mm -hmm. basically small winery low intervention natural Mm -hmm. and all of that right and not using pesticides in the vineyard or using like natural things like you know, orange and things like right. that. Right. 
So this is like, for a lot of our producers, they were already doing this. So to get the organic certification wasn't necessarily that difficult. Right. If, you're, if your eye is towards that, mm-hmm. you don't have to. So generally, Hungarian wines um, have a great slant towards sustainability, mm-hmm. organics, low intervention, low pesticide, which is a nice thing as a general category. It's again like a great benefit of working with all these family-run places because this is their land. Like they're so, and they pick the grapes, so they're really sensitive about how the grapes are treated, and then what happens in the cellar. This is not like mass production. So obviously that's important to you. I mean, very early on, you know, when you were traveling back and forth and you had this love for the people and the wine, Mm -hmm. is that something that you noticed? You didn't stumble on it later. I mean... Honestly, I was looking for small, authentic, like people who cared about what they were doing and that's what they were doing yeah so it honestly happened yeah i wasn't like i wasn't kind of went hand in hand right i wasn't like are you spontaneously fermenting your wine and then i found out the guy would go what will we do that anyway right and they're why yes yeah and they all were yeah and it's things like now that i've learned so much more about wine than when i started my business i realize like hungary is just so lucky in so many ways like they don't have to meddle with anything really to make wine. Which is great. There's yeast around, there's great acidity, there's ripeness, like et cetera. That's great. Um, all right, we're talking to Athena Bachanis. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to uh, have Athena answer a few more questions, then the wine list, and then we're going to taste a few more wines. You're listening to The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. We're back. We are back with my guest, Athena Bochanis. Athena is the proprietor of Palinkery uh, Hungarian Wines. She imports wines from Hungary, which we've been talking about. All right, a couple more things. I'm always curious about women in wine. And you're in an interesting position because I've had a lot of Psalms on, restaurant owners, even winemakers. We do women in wine every June. Not a lot of women wine importers. Is there any issue that you can identify or obstacle or objections that you come across as being a woman wine importer in New York? Truthfully, no, but it's very uncommon, especially as a owning my distribution company. Right. I think that there are some female importers but I would say very few 
distributors. Um, very few that I've met, if any. Right. Um, and so you're in the is, minority, but no, mm-hmm. no, everybody's fine. Everybody's fine with it. New York's um, a good market for that. You I know, think. I think that there's definitely an assumption when people meet me, especially when I started, because I was a little bit younger, that I was just the rep. And I would say, this is my company. And they would say, okay, uh uh-huh, and and who do you work for again? And I'd say, again, I work for myself. This is my company. But it wasn't anything, you know, particularly agreed That's like in a restaurant. A woman sommelier goes Mm -hmm. over to her table at a fine restaurant. They go, can you send the sommelier over? I am the sommelier. Well, no, can you send? It's like code. Can you send the guy over or whatever? So... The world's not there yet. They're still like, you know, what are you doing? And, you know, it's also not completely uh, like, especially in the case of owning a distribution company. If I'm the only woman that you know who owns a distribution company, then it's not crazy for you to ask twice. Like if I own the distribution company, if you've never met a woman who does it. Right. And I think about this a lot. And, you know, why is it that we don't have more women who do this? And I think it's like a deeper, you know... Um, issue yeah. about you know women just not being socialized to to do things like a bigger business scale, which I think distribution is usually like on a bigger scale. Right. Mine is really small, so like I'm not even. But a it's good a example. big leap. It's a leap, even though it's mm-hmm. a smaller you know distribution importation, a lot of moving parts. Yeah, and it takes a lot of. I guess like there is some kind of you know I don't want to say courage, but like you have to kind of go into it and courage be willing would be to, fair. To take this will, risk and I will let you say that. And kind of, you know, tell people to get over it if they're not ready for your wines. And I think that, you know, it'd be great to see women feel more like they also can do that and they could take that leap even if they weren't totally qualified to do it, like I wasn't. And I think men do that all the time, you know. They right. take risks that they're not totally qualified to do. They believe in themselves and very good point. Yeah. Um Nothing to do with being a woman on this question, but <laughs> you, well, maybe a little. Okay. But what are your, what are the biggest objections you get? You know, because you are the business. You have some people working with you, but it's a small business. So you're in and out of restaurants. You're in and out of retailers. We talked about this a little outside. What are the biggest objections you get? You know, people don't have time. I don't want any stupid Hungarian. I mean, what? <laughs> what um, yeah. So you what's know, common? <laughs> the the top excuses. I would say that the main issue. So, in our market, as you know, like I don't sell directly to consumers. I sell to right. retail and restaurants, and I think it's just always an additional task for them to bring in these wines that consumers don't know about. So they have now the added task of educating, explaining to the consumer. Is there a laziness factor? Like, why do I need this on my list to have to... I think so. It'll either die or I got to spend time explaining. Is that a little of it? Definitely. So Um, you have a better shot with a room full of consumers than a room full of... 100%. Okay. 100%. Um, And I think that... You know, that's really, I struggle with people who are who are buying for a restaurant or a shop who are like, why are you making my life more difficult? <laughs> but if you have the mentality as a buyer of, ooh, you're making my life more interesting, then like, this is who I want to sell to. And luckily, there are plenty of people like that who really are curious and really do care and want to show diversity. Right. So right. 
but you're subjected to everybody. Right. Um, <laughs> and I want actually any consumer to have access to the wine. So I, I, I owe it to them also to try with people who are hesitant as right, well. Right. Um, social media is something that's <coughs> a way of life for us now. True. Didn't exist forever. Mm-hmm. I don't even think social media is in high school yet as far as heavy usage. When you started the business not that long ago, it was probably different than, than now. Mm-hmm. Um, I would guess it has a positive effect, but how, and it would be different if you didn't have the outlet of social media for your brand. It seems like your brand and situation is a perfect setup. To mm-hmm. I think... Yeah, you know, when I started my company, I remember thinking to myself, well, I don't want to be one of those people who's like all on Instagram and I don't want to share personal photos and things that... You don't even have a personal account, I think. It's like separate from my business when I do. But, you you know, I was thinking to myself, oh, I'm not going to put any selfies or... And now I'm like, well... Actually, whatever. This is like part of my business. You are the business. Yeah. And, and so you outgrew that, I that outgrew sensation. That. I outgrew that that need for privacy and right. put it aside for social media because actually this is a part of my business. And I think especially in my position, promoting these like rare wines that actually consumers are curious about. And I want them to be able to know where they can find it, where I'm doing a tasting, who's selling my wine. So it's a really useful thing for me. And I have people from all over the world who, I mean, I don't have that many followers, but I have enough. And I have people from all over the U.S. and around the world who are kind of seeing what's going on. Right. So it's it's a huge benefit for a small company like me. So before you said, you know, if you could sit with a bunch of sommeliers or sit with a bunch of consumers, you probably can make a bigger impact. I would say that social media... Mm-hmm. you're going directly to the consumer. So exactly. its importance there is, exactly. is, is, is way up there. Yeah, because I'm not just, I don't just have an import distribution business. I'm also promoting a type of wine that people really don't know about. So it's actually like a marketing campaign too, because right. for me to sell well, that's this wine. The importance of social media, you know, if you're doing an event mm-hmm. at a venue, or a bar, you're helping the bar, you're helping the product. If you're bringing something new in, you want to do brand plus hashtagging. Mm-hmm. You know all your, all these crazy grapes and winemakers. You know people tend to hit hashtags and uh-huh. go, what's what's you fark? Mm-hmm. You know, so Definitely. that's important. So it, it's a good thing. And do you feel yourself <coughs> using it more and more? I do. Okay. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's a. A part of me doesn't like it, that I'm on social media, and another part of me is really happy that I can share what we're doing and these I, wines with everybody. I think the part that doesn't like it, you better get over it. Oh, I know. Okay. Yeah. All right. Athena Bucanis, <laughs> we are going to subject you now to the Grape Nation wine list. We ask all our guests every week a bunch of questions. I don't want you to overthink these. I want you to zip through them. Uh, you don't need millions of answers, but this is where our listeners get some uh, good intel on stuff. So we do the wine list, but we're doing the special Hungarian edition. First time ever. <laughs> so every question that I've asked everyone in the past, you are going to answer in the context of Hungarian wines. 
I mean, if you don't I understand, anyway. leave now and I will end it, end this show or we will proceed. <laughs> proceed. I was going to answer it in Hungarian wine anyway. So I figured perfect. you would. Good for you. <laughs> All right. So the first question we ask everyone is what are you drinking now? This time of the year, tasting, testing, you know, so what's Hungarian that you're tasting? Anybody new, new grapes, diving into something? Tell me. Right now, I found someone making um, sparkling wine, champagne method, tra- method traditionnel, in the north of Hungary um, on limestone soil. So it's really these cool, high acid, mineral sparkling wines that I think are super cool. And this is what we're bringing this in. So this will be dish. coming in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Did you the know year. they existed? And you kind of sought them out? Yeah. And you like them and they're coming into the U.S.? Exactly. Is there a name or anything? His name is Palfi. Okay. Um, any specific grape or grapes that are going into this? Um, it's probably, we. I would like to bring in all of his sparkling wine. There's a ferment. There's a Pinot Noir. It's like a Blanc de Noir. There's a uh, Olas Riesling, which is Welsh Riesling. Nice. When are we looking at for this stuff? We're looking Next year? release December, so probably January okay. we'll have them. Good answer. Um, next question, favorite wine and food pairing. So what is Athena Bocanis' favorite Hungarian wine and Hungarian food pairing? And don't say goulash and ferment. That's <laughs> like champagne and oysters. Okay? No, okay. Um... I would have to say a dry Tokai Samarodny. Spell Samarodny. And what is it? Samarodny is S-E-A-M-O-R-O-D-N-I. And this is a... Actually, it can be made in a sweet and a dry style. The sweet style is very similar to a Sauterne. Okay. It's Botrytis, and it's made in the same style as a Sauterne. The dry style is, imagine you let it continue fermenting until it becomes a dry wine. So you don't top off the barrel, and on top of the wine in the barrel, as the wine minimizes as it's fermenting, actually a floor develops. So like, um, the wine has this oxidative, kind of moldy quality to it. So So what are you pairing with that? It's like a white, it's like a a dry sherry, sort of. Right. Um, And I would pair this with cheese... Maybe foie gras, but... It, it could cut through the intensity exactly. and complexity of a exactly. intense cheese like or Like a creamy, gras. salty right. cheese plate. Mm-hmm. All right, that's a first for the show, for sure. I knew it. <laughs> All right, tell me your favorite restaurant or wine bar um, that has the... And I usually say the proper attention to wine wine service, wine knowledge, wine selection, uh, bar, restaurant, mm-hmm. you know, it could be just bars, restaurants, but Hungarian wines. Mm-hmm. This is where our listeners are going to go because mm-hmm. they have some of your stuff. So give me some places. Um, I favorite. Would, okay. Yeah. I would say my favorite, um, which is a place you can get several of our wines, is probably Company de okay. It's a show favorite, (laughs) Caleb. That's one place. Where else? Um, I would suggest Ruffian. Ruffian in the East Village. In the East Village. What about, is there a sit-down restaurant that has a few bottles? Mm -hmm. I would say a good place might be the Eddy. The Eddy, which is where? This is also in the East Village. Okay. All right, those are good. 
So we have three choices there. Those were all good places in New York. Do you have a favorite all-time Hungarian wine? And I'm not talking about the rarest, the most expensive. Could be. But do you have something that, you know, you continue to think about when you had it? and One or two, one. You know, it's tough because as a Hungarian wine importer and bringing in this all-Hungarian portfolio with very little competition, I feel sometimes like I'm this, you know, mother hen who can't choose her favorite chick. But I would say... But that that's not what I'm asking. I understand. In your travels. Yeah. You know, did a winemaker pull something out, you mm-hmm. know, from pre-World War II? <laughs> it doesn't have to be that. Mm-hmm. Or the first time you tasted... Harsh level or what you know, whatever. Nailed it. You know, I would say okay. I have there's got to be something that rises a little more to the top. I would say two. I get to taste a lot of cool wine. There are two wines that stick out. One is a mm, probably 2009 vintage of a dry Tokai that I had. Okay. Um, from Barta, which is that's a Mad- the maker mm-hmm. or B A R T A. Exactly. Okay. Um, and then the last time I was in Hungary, I had a 2008 Harsh Levelu from Shomlo. Okay. So volcanic soil, Harsh Levelu, our favorite grape to say. Um, it was so powerful and fruit forward and volcanic. And memorable. Just extremely memorable. Okay, that's mm-hmm. what we're looking for. Yeah. Um, I forgot to tell everyone, but we will post all of Athena's um, <coughs> choices and recommendations, the wine list, the wines that we're tasting. Let's take a quick break and tell me the second wine that we were, we're drinking right now. Perfect. So the second wine I have in front of you is a very memorable wine as well, in my opinion. This is a 2007 dry ferment harsh levelu blend. The name of the blend is the Dulu Hazoshag, which means the marriage of the vineyards. So it's wine, it's uh, grapes from two vineyards, Harsh Levelu and Furmit from each of those vineyards Okay. together. Um, this is from Mad in Tokai. So this is Northeast Hungary, volcanic limestone soils. And these wines, so Tokai is famous for sweet wine, and the sweet wines in Tokai can age eternally. Um, the ass, They have good acidity, good structure, and they can really last a long time. So this is a dry style, and I think that we can also see that this has such age potential. This is 11 years old, very fresh, very balanced. Yes, for an 11-year-old wine. Yeah. It's very fresh and very balanced. Um, definitely also terroir-driven, like a yeah. mineral quality to it. Um, is it available? or? It is. Okay. It's... um. It's, it has definitely a bit of a following, it this, does. this wine. Mm-hmm. So this is your culty Hungarian wine. Okay. <laughs> we'll make sure to post that. Yes. All right. Last question on the um, wine list. We ask everybody, whether you're a Psalm, a retailer, a winemaker, best wine around 15 bucks, red and a white. Now, are there wines in the $15, $20 range retail? Mm-hmm. That you bring in? Yeah. So give me, you're talking to people that may be willing to try it. Give me the best recommendation. I wouldn't say entry level, but mm-hmm. first choice. Give me a white, give me a red. Okay. I would say for the white, you should try the Galtibor Egri Chilag. That's the maker? <laughs> Galtibor is the winemaker. G A L T I B O R. 
Galtibor. Mm -hmm. And it is what again? This is the egg ricci log. This is okay. the white blend from Eger. And I would find it in a store for about how much? About 15. Okay. Mm -hmm. Give me a red. I would go also Galtibor. Okay. And the Egri Bicaver Bull's Blood. Okay. So, so here's your, your chance here's to your try chance a Bull's Blood. To try that Bull's and it's blood. in that fifteen to twenty dollar mm -hmm. range. Yeah. And then because I'm gonna force this in, I would say rose. really you should taste the rose, which All is right, also about fifteen. Okay. This is Galtibor too or no, somebody <laughs> This is the Dougie. Um the Dougie Cake Francos Rose. Okay. This is from the south of Hungary, and it's like our best-selling wine, and I think an incredible wine for, for, the, for the money as well. probably going to have to take pictures of the bottles. All right. Good job on that. I will post all those Great. so that people have the information. Um, do we have a third wine? Mm-hmm. We do. All right. So every week, we taste a different wine on air for our weekly wine sip. Today was a little unusual because Athena brought in three wines. Um, we have a lot of education. I come. wanted her to showcase as many different wines, you know, different than other shows, where I really just get the guests to evaluate them. Um, so what's, for our weekly wine sip, what's the third wine we're tasting? So we've had a Ufark, we've had a Furmin Harslebelu, and now the third wine is a Rosé. This okay. is the Rosé I just mentioned. All this right. is the Duji. Cake Francos Rosé. Is that it? Oh, right here. Um, so this is Cake Francos Blau Frankish, and this is from the south of Hungary. Okay. This is a fuller-bodied rosé, and this guy, Mr. Duji, he is known in Hungary as the king of rosé. It's got a lot of body. So this is a notable rosé for Hungary. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so let's just... So give me the producer again. His name is Duzi. D-U-S-I? D-U-Z-S-I. All right. I forgot with the Hungarians. There's the Z <laughs> It's like the Zsa Zsa Gabor. You right, know, right, Duzi. right. Mm -hmm. All right. So we're going to talk color, nose, mouthfeel, palate. So it's got this beautiful salmon, pinkish rosé. Mm -hmm. I mean, Salmon, you know, I think, nails it. Yeah. I mean, really beautiful, you know, clear, very nice. That's the color. Mm -hmm. The nose, I know you got a little cold, but traditionally... <laughs> What I think you? we have, like, black cherry. You do have black cherry in this? Mm -hmm. Really? I think so. Okay. What else? A little bit of um, some white flower, mm. red fruit. Yeah, definitely. Um, to me, the mouth is guava, papaya, Don't get ahead of me. Oh. Mouthfeel. It's a very <laughs> opulent wine, right? Mm -hmm. Give me your mouthfeel. It's, like it's like a medium, medium plus, plus or something. Right? It's totally. very, a little glistenery mm -hmm. mouth coating and all that. Not typical for a rosé, right? Mm -hmm. This is a pretty full-bodied wine. Yeah. All right. Now you could talk to me about the palate. I think tropical fruit, papaya, guava. Yeah. There's um, a little exotic fruit to it. And the finish is dry. So it yes. finishes in this citrus grapefruit. Um, Acidity is medium. High, um, good acidity. Medium right? plus. Yeah, it's, it's six grams, so it's got good plus. acidity. Mm -hmm. What um, foods would you pair with this? I think that this, to me, like uh, seafood or fried foods, like this could of, hold up to fried foods. I right? think so. What kind of seafood? I think this, like, 
this also I feel like could hold up to like a spicy dish. So I'm imagining some kind of like spicy fish sandwich or something. Okay. Um, it's would got this a be lot good of with Chinese food. Spicy Chinese. I would say yes. Okay. It's maybe spicy Chinese, like spicy, like a fish sandwich. Right. Um, you could do something lighter, like vegetable salad. But I think also a fried food, white meat for sure. All right. So. This is a two-prong question. Uh, this is available retail. Mm-hmm. So let's just stay in New York for now. I mean, we have listeners all over the world, believe it or not. Um, give me a few retailers in New York that are faithful and loyal and always have your stuff. Okay. I would say in Manhattan, um, Flatiron Wines Flat is iron. a good bet for a lot of our wines, okay, including the ones we tasted today. Right, good to know. So is Verve wine. Verve, Dustin and Jeff. Mm-hmm. Okay, give me one more. And the third I would recommend would be Uva in Williamsburg. And who's been around a long time mm-hmm. and all of that. All right, so if you're interested in uh, Athena's wines, Palinkery is the... Um, import company those are some places you can go into we also mentioned a bunch of restaurants but i think an easy foray is i'd like to try some hungarian wines if you're interested in rosé red white you know just say that and all the places we mentioned they know it Mm -hmm. all right athena we're going to wrap up the show it's been an hour um if you have a question suggestion wine happening or event hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com that's sam at thegrapenation.com follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. Follow us on Instagram. We do that at Ruby, and we use the hashtag The Grape Nation. On Twitter, we're at BenRuby. I know it's confusing, but pay attention. Um, also, subscribe to The Grape Nation podcast. You can get it on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. I will post all of Athena's uh, wine list recommendations, our weekly wine sip, and the couple of other wines that we tasted on all our social media sites. You'll find them on uh, Facebook. You'll see them on uh, Instagram, and they'll go over to Twitter. Um, Athena, where can we find you and Palinkery on social media? You can find me and Palinkery, one and the same, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Palinkery. Spell for everybody. One this time. is P-A-L-I-N-K-E-R-I-E. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, one last thing. Heritage Radio and the Grape Nation will be visiting Norwalk, Connecticut during their Crush Week of Beer, Wine and Spirits themed events, October 16th through the 20th. The Grape Nation will be doing an intimate wine dinner at the Wine Room at Washington Prime on Friday, 10-19. Go to norwalknow.org for more info. It's a big four-day wine, beer, spirits, food festival. I want to thank our guest, Athena Bokanis from Palinkery, the only all-Hungarian wine importer distributor. Um, Thank you to our engineer, Jeet, and thank you to everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben-Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Athena. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.